Hey, it's Nathan again. Welcome back. We need to we need to have a talk. This is the second to last episode in the series, and we've covered so much that we think it might be helpful at this point to try to put everything we've discussed into the context of history and the bigger systems that have shaped and continue to shape our neighbors' stories. That's what we have in store for you now. But first, let's formally open the episode. Think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. Multiple pathways for a common purpose. We're looking at a human being and there's a life story. 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 Hey, this is what's going on. An elevated Denver starts now. All right, before we get rolling here, I need to introduce the voices that you'll hear in this episode. You'll remember Kathy Alderman from the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, who introduced us to Myra, and Cole Chandler from the Colorado Village Collaborative, who took us through the safe outdoor space. Now I need to introduce you to three more neighbors who will join us in this episode. First up, allow me to introduce a neighbor who has been involved in urban planning for decades. I'm Susan Powers. I'm the president of Urban Ventures, which is a real estate development company in Denver that I started about 24 years ago. I've been in Denver since 1980, so I've seen a lot of changes over the years, how the community has grown, and what's worked and what hasn't. Next, please meet Candy C. DeBaca, who grew up in Northeast Denver and in 2019 won an upset election to join Denver's city council. It's interesting because homelessness wasn't initially what catalyzed my race. It became a very hot topic during my race and colored my entire experience and election. But gentrification was a primary catalyst for me. And I saw the beginning of the pipeline to involuntary displacement with what was happening directly in my community due to the unchecked development and the nature of being the top city to live in in the country. And then, you know, really have had the opportunity to dive into the other end of the pipeline. What happens once displacement happens? And what are the reasons why you can't pull yourself out of homelessness? And finally, we'd like you to meet our neighbor, who is the person at the city of Denver coordinating the city's efforts to end homelessness. I am Britta Fisher. I'm the chief housing officer for the city and county of Denver and the executive director of the Department of Housing Stability. I came to Colorado and to Denver in particular to do a program called the Urban Servant Corps, where I made $75 a month while volunteering full-time at a nonprofit called Metro Caring. I came to help people overcome food insecurity. And so as I was helping people meet their basic needs around food, I learned that really the thing that kept them up at night, the thing that they most needed was affordable housing. They were worried about where would they get ready for the day? Where would they make the meals? Where would their kids do homework? Would they have to change schools? And that resonated deeply with me and has put me on a course to do a lot for affordable housing. To understand how we got to where we are today, we need to understand four key systems that help to explain maybe not everything, but a whole lot of what's going on here. 
This is complex, and these four systems overlap and compound each other. So buckle up. We're going to start with a set of policies that have exacerbated inequality in America, and Denver is no exception. Here's Susan Powers. Everybody blames the banks for redlining and putting circles around neighborhoods and saying we're not going to invest in them because people are black or they're brown. But these were federal policies that I can't say I was aware of until I read this amazing book called The Color of Law. They allowed lenders and encouraged lenders to not lend in neighborhoods that didn't meet certain demographic standards. And in Denver, certain neighborhoods that happened to be basically black neighborhoods and brown neighborhoods, there were lines drawn around them. And when people came back from World War II, if they were black, they couldn't go back to their neighborhoods and take advantage of the federal benefits that went for people to buy houses. They stayed there, but they were still renters. But the white soldiers who came back, they were allowed and encouraged to go into the suburbs and FHA insured their mortgages and they created the white flight that we talk about. Black households in this country didn't get what is a subsidy that went to white soldiers and their families. And, you know, everybody always talks about the fact that it's important to buy a house and that wealth goes to the next generation and the third generation. And if our parents didn't have that, we would not have the economic benefits we have today. It's played out in every city in this country. There's some systemic housing policy issues that have some extraordinary racist roots. This is Kathy Alderman. Redlining policies, zoning issues that disallow multifamily developments where only single families live. This has kept people out of being able to live in certain neighborhoods, but it's also made less housing available to them over time. That's why we see so many individuals of certain ethnic and racial backgrounds overrepresented in the population of people experiencing homelessness. You know, over the course of time that I've watched, especially the downtown and the neighborhoods around it, there was a lot of disinvestment, not in Cherry Creek, but in the inverted L that people talk about, which is along the I-70 corridor and then down I-25, the lower income neighborhoods didn't get the investment in parks or in education. And that's a public policy decision that somebody was making consciously or not. We focus a lot on the individual and the individual's deficiencies. This situation was not created by the individuals who are homeless. The issue really did start back in the 60s. The urban renewal movement, urban superhighways, raising of historic buildings for the creation of parking lots. We were coming off of a civil rights movement and while many people may have perceived the creation of public housing as a win, in many ways, urban renewal was backlash to the civil rights movement. Yes, we created public housing, but we concentrated people of color and poverty in certain areas of town. We continued on with segregation in a de facto way with our banking systems. We were divesting in neighborhoods at the same time that we were concentrating people of color in those spaces. So those neighborhoods were not prospering as this growth was going on. And as people started moving here, those neighborhoods became interesting. 
you know, everything about gentrification is not terrible. I mean, having investment going into neighbors is important. People come in and pay above market, but it is not good for a neighborhood if it's pushing people out of it. And that's really what's happened. So we are basically exporting the working class, you know, and many definitions of it would be people who are poor to Commerce City, to Aurora, to other places. And we're also losing the diversity of the people who lived in the community. You know, the Latino population that were on the west side and the African-American population in the northeast. I don't think that's healthy for Denver. If you're a black or brown person in one of these gentrifying neighborhoods that has a house that's worth a million dollars now, you end up being pushed out because the control over the resources to tap into your equity still belongs to the dominant power structure that doesn't want you to in that neighborhood in the first place. The history is there, it is laid out, it is in our laws. This is Britta Fisher. I remember purchasing a property in Wheat Ridge and seeing in the covenant, Caucasians only. People have been prevented in recent history and currently from housing because of the color of their skin. If we don't recognize that, we cannot repair it. And so when we look at our policies and we think, oh, we're just tweaking this neutral policy, we must ask, was this based on racist goals and systems? And if we do not dismantle those, we will not fundamentally change the outcomes that have been so racially disparate because tragically and systematically, that was the design. You know, there's still conversations you have with people who are looking for homes who are black, who are directed into different neighborhoods or people who are white that want their kids growing up in an integrated environment and who are discouraged from that. You know, it's just part of the culture of the industry. It does influence my sense of responsibility for what I should be doing with my profession. Redlining and other racist policies that came long before and after are the first key system that we need to consider. The very long shadow of those policies explains the lack of resources that keeps a disproportionate number of people of color away from home ownership. But poverty affects people regardless of what they look like. The second key system we need to consider is what we as a country have chosen to do and not do to help people experiencing poverty to secure stable housing. The homeless problem in Denver is the homeless problem in this country. But it wasn't like this in the 80s. When downtown was really suffering because of the economy, there weren't people living on the streets then. So it's obviously something that's happened over the course of 30, 40 years here. This year, the latest point in time count was released. And it basically showed the greatest number of people experiencing homelessness at any point in our nation's history. You'll remember Cole Chandler from the Colorado Village Collaborative for the first time, there were more people that were sleeping outdoors than were sleeping in shelters. This is a problem that we really created for ourselves in the early 1980s when we made drastic cuts to the federal housing budget. Essentially, our government got out of the business of public housing. 
We are 40 years removed from that now, and we're really seeing the impact. In a lot of European countries, somewhere along the line, they made the decision that housing is a human right. It's called social housing. It's not called public housing. Thinking about how Social Security came about in this country, we made the decision as a country that everybody, when they reach a certain age, should have a defined income. That was a big decision. Until we get to a point as a country that we say housing is a right, everybody needs shelter and we're willing to pay for it, then we're probably not going to have that environment that you see in Europe. We took a different path here. And so you have now a situation where not only do we need public housing, but we've created policies to remove the little bit of public housing we had left. And you have this aggression toward people who were probably living in the public housing you removed and now have nowhere to go. It's this whole snowball effect of not only disdain for the poor, but a perception that they're not valuable if they're not contributing to the economic system or if they're not profitable within that system. The worldview that led to creating drastic cuts to the federal housing budget, it was probably twofold. One, it was this idea that people living on welfare wasn't good for our country. It was enabling people. People should go get a job, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, in Ronald Reagan's actual words. The other piece of the theory was around public safety and crime. These public housing facilities had a perception that they were not safe. Those two narratives are still very dominant 40 years later. Every single time that I'm trying to create a project in a neighborhood, and I've done it 11 times in the last four years, I hear these same two narratives over and over again. We have to understand that if you don't want people experiencing homelessness to live next door to you, let's provide them with housing and then they will no longer be homeless and they will behave as other housed people do. We need integrated neighborhoods. When we look at other countries that have much lower rates of homelessness, for one, they have public housing, but that public housing is mixed income. It's mixed use. It's not 300 people that have no income all living in a building together. If you're building a market rate apartment building or condos, neighborhoods may welcome them. Once you say affordable, then people start thinking of large public housing projects in New York or Chicago, and we don't want them in our neighborhood. No one is anywhere near as direct when they say that. It's always about the parking. But you know what people are really saying. It's really critical as a developer who cares about housing people that are of different incomes to put a face on who those people are. Because a lot of those people are your sons and your daughters and your friends' kids, and that's who we want to live here. Other communities have done big marketing campaigns where they talk about, it's fine for me to teach your kids, too bad I can't live here. It's great for me to save your life in a fire, but I can't afford to live here. It's also the people that work at Walmart and people that work in the coffee shops that everybody wants to go to every day. So we have to do a better job of kind of explaining what we're talking about here and what the issues are. 
Study after study have shown that more diverse communities and communities that allow different kinds of families to live in them are more desirable in the long term and are often the very communities that are more thriving. Denver doesn't have an inclusionary zoning ordinance any longer. So inclusionary zoning means that when you're developing property, market rate units, for instance, in the rental market, that you must include some number that are affordable for lower income families. Denver had an inclusionary zoning ordinance before 2016, but unfortunately many developers were able to pay their way out of providing those units. Unfortunately, we missed the real boom that happened here. This community ended the inclusionary housing ordinance and what they enacted was just this fee, but that didn't create enough income. And if we had the inclusionary housing ordinance, then 10% of the units during the biggest boom, you know, we'd have more units now. But it was the politics at the time. So that's two key systems that have brought us to where we are. And there are two more ahead, right after the break. Stick around. A frequent question we get about this podcast is, who funded it? Well, uh, we did. Which is to say that this is an independent production that was a labor of love. But our plan is to use this space to highlight some of the great work that sponsor organizations are doing to cultivate an elevated Denver. And if you're listening to this piece of audio, it means that there's room for us to share your story right here. We'll work with you to write a one to two minute story about the good work that you're doing and how it came to be. And then I'll read it and we'll play it right here so that more people can learn about your commitment to this community. That's good for you and it's good for us because your sponsorship will help this work and help us get it out to more people. If you want the details, just go to the contact page at www.elevateddenver.co and fill out the form and we'll be in touch. Now, back to the show. So at this point, Denver has a substantial shortage of affordable housing. And to see why, we need to dig into what the term affordable means and what the economics of providing affordable housing are. And that is the third system that can help us understand how we got here. Here's Britta Fisher from the Denver Department of Housing Stability. The Department of Housing and Urban Development defines affordable homes as one that the household in it is paying no more than 30% of their income for their housing costs. And it's meant that way because it's a national standard. It has to be applied in a lot of different contexts. Here in Denver, we look at people at the median income and below. And it's based on your household size as well. So a four-person household in Denver, the median income is just over $100,000. A single person, it's more like $74,000. Once you start paying more than 30%, that one-time health crisis becomes very hard to navigate. Any disruption of life becomes very hard to navigate. Here in Denver, about 115,000 households are paying more than 30% of their income on housing. That's like one in three households in Denver. More than 48,000 households are spending more than half their income on housing. And at that point, 
it takes very little for you to be in a full out housing crisis. So the person who's making $15 an hour here in Denver, that is an annual income of $31,200. It's not a bad income. And yet that gross monthly income is $2,600. And so when you think about so many neighborhoods in Denver having an average rent of over $2,000, that leaves only after taxes, maybe a couple hundred bucks in your pocket to pay for everything, to get to work, to pay for any type of unexpected bill. And that puts immense pressure on a person to just make it in Denver. So affordable housing isn't one thing, and it's not at one price. Affordable can mean that it's priced at incomes that are 80% of the area median, or 30% of the median, or even less. We know we need more affordable housing in Denver, particularly at the more steeply discounted rates. So how do affordable units like that get financed and built? Here's Susan Powers. The layers of financing to make an affordable housing project work today are pretty impressive. They take a long time to put together and they're hard. The most common way of financing them is through low-income housing tax credits, which are federal tax credits to a third-party investor, a bank or other kinds of institutions. They value being part of the project, but they also are getting the economic value of not paying federal taxes. And they get a credit for that and they put it as equity into the project. Private lenders coming in with 20%, and you have to make up that other 80%, and that is tax credits, the city of Denver, the state, Division of Housing, all have what they call gap financing. So you go to them and say, how much per unit will you give me for this project? And then you negotiate what you need based on the costs of it. And the costs right now are close to $300,000 a unit to produce. If you want to address the deepest levels of affordability, that's the only way you can do it. How is it different if you're just going to do a straight market rate development? You know, you find a lender and they will say to you, come in with whatever, 20% equity. And so I would go out and find equity partners. We would have to come up with that amount. And then private lender does the rest. They would do it based on what they think the rent levels would be, which are, you know, $2,500 for one or two bedroom apartment. There is no financial incentive for them to build something that is gonna bring in less income. If it costs, say, $300,000 to produce a, a unit, okay, so then you would need to sell it for more than that to get your money back. But if it's a rental unit, wouldn't you make that back over time anyway? Is it a time horizon issue? Or how do those economics work? You know, it depends on what the rent is. So if it's a market rate rental project, sure, you can. You can make that back and you can make a profit on it too. But if you're, instead of charging $2,500 a unit, someone who is in the 30% area median income, they can afford $550. So that's a huge delta. It's basically 20% of market rate. But like the theory would be then, okay, so it would take five times as long to be able to pay it off. You don't have loans that are five times as long and we're not gonna have a 100-year mortgage. And you can do these calculations and it's not brain surgery to figure out what the disconnect is. The other thing is, is that we should all be advocating for more federal tax credits, but we have to realize that that is money that comes out of the federal budget. 
It's an additional subsidy, but we need more of them. We get allocated on a statewide basis based on our population. And they're doing a great job at trying to get every project that comes into them that is a legitimate affordable housing project, they're trying to get them funded. It's still not enough. A whole building of all units that are discounted by 80% is probably not the ideal solution here. So, so what are the economics for mixed use? Can you just help us dispel that out? The most successful mixed use projects that are being built now are being built by the Denver Housing Authority. And they're part of a federal change in policy to try not to concentrate poverty. So the idea here is to have a mix of incomes that are a third public housing, which is not homeless, but it's the next level up, and then a third that are workforce and a third that are market rate. You need deep subsidies to do that. In the past, if you negotiated a rezoning in your property and you were building for sale housing or a rental, the city would say 10% of the units or some number have to be affordable. It would just be built into the economics of that project. The community of developers in Denver, would you say that they could, if they wanted to, just build a number of affordable units into every development that they're doing and still be able to make a healthy profit? I think that's true as long as we're monitoring what it costs to build housing, because construction costs have been out of control here. So what I could build for five years ago, there's nothing I can do now. And the uncertainty of the costs of lumber and the labor market and the availability to find anybody to build it, all those things affect the cost of it. And the one thing I didn't talk about when we're talking about cost is that when you're dealing with people that are coming out of homelessness, the level of support services that they need you don't have those support services when you're building market rate housing. You know, you might have a pool or a concierge, but that's not the same as bringing mental health workers in and really dealing with all of the underlying issues that have been contributing to someone's housing status. I wish I could point to examples of it that are purely private sector, but the economics don't work for that. They're in the business to make a profit. Now, maybe they make too much sometimes, but you can't make the economics work without deep, deep subsidy and we just have to support those subsidies. The scorecard for success, as best anybody can define it in my experience, is still some derivative of GDP. And I guess my question is for you, what do you think the definition of success should be for a city and a community? I guess a successful city is one where the growth and the prosperity affects everyone. And in the circumstances that we have today, it probably needs to be evaluated more on the growth and the prosperity of people that are in the lowest third of the income levels in the city, more so than just an overall average. And that's really the challenge. We can look at statistics that say, you know, we have X number of job growth. It might look like we're doing fine, but if you look a little deeper into it, the lower income, the workforce, working class people in the city, their income is not growing at the levels that the cost of living is. We've seen the kind of development in Denver that excludes the essential workers that we require for the city to operate. This is Kathy Alderman. And we've made it almost impossible for those people who are at those lower wage jobs to live near where they work which means they then have to travel, which then is a stress on their time, can prevent them from doing adequate childcare, and is a stress on the environment. 
And so I think we need to look at how we use wages to incentivize the continuation of that kind of work. We need bus drivers all the time. We need servers all the time. So those essential jobs should be paid a livable housing wage. The chamber and the city are beginning to hear companies say, I want to be in Denver, but I can't move here because I can't hire people who can afford to live here. That's pretty serious. They can commute, but they're not as invested in where they live. I think our community needs people that are that invested, especially on public service jobs, and it's getting harder to do that. Hearing about the three previous systems, which are again, one, policies that propagated economic inequality, two, the lack of programs to make stable housing accessible for all, and three, the economics and policy of affordable and inclusive housing, sets the stage for us to consider the fourth key system that got us to where we are today, the recent history of city policies on homelessness. We go back to 2012 when Denver passes a law called the Unauthorized Camping Ban, which effectively states that it's illegal to eat, sleep, store your possessions, or cover yourself with a blanket in public space. One of the things that that law created was this enforcement around unsanctioned camping. Police were being deployed to camps and people were being moved along. I think it's become clear over many years that just whack-a-mole, just moving people along, it's not leading to better outcomes for anyone. If we're gonna sweep people, at least give them an option of where to be. If they are not going to fit within our definition of who the public is to enjoy public space, then we need to give them an option. On one hand, there's this idealistic vision that everyone would be in housing, and that's a vision that I subscribe to. But pragmatically, moving people along doesn't solve anyone's problems. And so how do we actually try to create wins on all sides? That's really where safe outdoor spaces came from. When we got into 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, we felt like there was a new opportunity to push for a concept that we'd always had some interest in, which was essentially sanctioned encampments or safe outdoor spaces. I had been in conversations that involved neighborhood leaders and service providers and city government for a couple of years around this idea. And there was always a little bit of interest in it, but there was never the political will. 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, the political will was shifting. In the early days of the pandemic, the immediate thing that occurred was shelters had to cut their capacity because they had to create social distancing opportunities so that every space didn't turn into a site of a giant outbreak. There were immediately less shelter beds available. Then the city worked to solve for that problem. They opened up the Coliseum and National Western these big, huge buildings that people can be spread out in. And they also worked to bring on hotels where people had the ability to come indoors and individualize spaces as well. They kind of got sheltering capacity into the range that they felt like it needed to be. 
but there were still more people outside than we'd ever seen before. And because there wasn't normal life happening, those people that in the past were sort of living unsheltered but kind of out of sight were suddenly in giant encampments in Civic Center Park and across the street from the Capitol building and in the downtown ballpark area. And that is more or less how we got to where we are now. The systems that allow so many of our neighbors to remain unhoused have deep roots that must be addressed before we can solve the problem of homelessness in Denver. So the big question, of course, is where do we go from here? Well, probably first to the next and final episode, where we will hear the five-year plan the city of Denver has to address homelessness and what you can do, dear listener, to do your part. I need every Denver resident to know that it is very possible and realistic to reduce homelessness to what's called functional zero, where we have as many housing resources as we have people in housing crisis every month. That has been done. It has been done in other places. And we have seen in the United States dramatic reductions in homelessness in communities that have poured the resources into housing and supports. Episode 10 is next. Don't miss it. Thank you to Nathan Church, our editor, sound designer, and barista. Production was provided by Havy Pro Cinema. Elevated Denver is produced and critiqued by Tony Minardi. Strategy, planning, and social distancing are provided by Jonna Flood. The all-local music you heard in this episode is thanks to our music supervisor, Zach Warkenton, and features Greensleeves and Sarah Sleep. Thank you also to China Caliph, who helped to develop the idea for this production. I'm your director and host, Nathan Havey. If you want to go deeper, you'll find background and extras at elevateddenver.co, like Colorado. And while you're there, jump on the email list so we can be in touch and hopefully get your help, too. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver. With you, I want to dance in the sun.